Welcome to The Brian Buffini Show, where we explore the mindsets, motivation, and methodologies of success. Here's your host, Brian Buffini. Well, it's not your host just yet. It's David Lally again, and we went into the archives today to bring you an inspirational message that Brian gave at our Mastermind event a number of years ago. The reason you might find this presentation so pertinent is that Brian loves to teach from principles, and he always says, principles don't change, only the tactics do. The title of this message is A Setback is a Setup for a Comeback. This was true coming out of the last recession, and will be true coming out of this pandemic too. We hope you enjoy. Will there be setbacks in your life in the years to come? Yes or no? Yes. So what we're going to do here to start with is we're going to kind of diagnose and pull apart what it looks like, what a setback looks like, what a comeback looks like. And we're going to start pulling it apart. We're going to diagnose how to do it, what it looks like, and what we need so that we have tools in place, because you're going to need different tools for different times. You're going to need different skills for different seasons. There are different challenges with different comebacks. Some of them, you know, they're self-imposed setbacks. Is that true? Then there's things that are total blindsides. You never see them coming. Those things that happen in life. The car wreck, you know, buddy of mine's going and he's, he's diving and he jumps in and breaks his pelvis. Okay? I mean, it just changes everything. Changes your work, changes your life, changes your body, changes your health, changes your attitude, changes your mind. So boom! Just things happen. Health issues, financial issues, something happens to a family member, a loved one, things in the greater economy, communities. Okay? There's things you could do differently, but, you know, when our house burned down, you know, Southern California had a fire it hadn't seen in 100 years. Okay, there's things that you just are not prepared for, okay? And so there are different comeback strategies and plans needed for different types of setbacks, different seasons, and different types of setbacks you have in different seasons. And so this is what we're going to do. We're going to pull it apart, and we're going to equip you. Are you guys game for this? So we're going to get to work. We're going to go hard right now. If you're ready, Sam, ready? Come on, here we go. A season of trial and testing. We've been through collectively a season of trial and testing, but again, there's seasons of trial and testing at all times. Seasons of tests and trial happen all the time. All the time. Some more severe than others. So what is a test? It's to refine gold or silver by destruction, by applying intense heat and reducing by abrasion. That's what a test is. That's according to Noah Webster. To refine gold or silver by destruction, by applying intense heat and by reducing vibration. Have any of you been in any intense heat the last couple of years? Let me see your hands, please. You always thought being hot was a good thing, didn't you? Now, last year, in fact, it was two years ago, I introduced the concept of the crucible. Do you guys remember this? I talked about being in the crucible and the crucible of life. And the crucible, this is how they refine gold. And this is a powerful thing. They take gold. Is gold valuable, yes or no? 
You take valuable gold and you put it into the crucible. Intense heat. And as you go into the crucible, the intense heat melts you down. Now the purpose is that those impurities, those things that actually create less value in you, get burned off. And what comes out the other side is a gold that's more valuable and more precious. As you go up to different levels of gold, 14 to 18 to 24 karat gold, what happens is it's a more pure form of gold. It means it's been tested in the fire more. It means it's had that stuff burned off. Well, that's what being tested is like. Now, what happens is we can run from it, we can hide from it, we can medicate away from it, we can numb it out, we can run away from it, we can drink it out, we can eat it out, we can TV it out, we can do whatever we want. But the truth of the matter is, what we need to have is a plan when you're in the crucible, it's not fun. We just need to know that we're in the crucible, we're being tested. It won't be forever, it never is. But you come out the other side, pure like gold. And that's what testing and trial is all about. A trial is suffering that puts strength, patience, or faith to the test. Uh, it's interesting. Say those three words with me. Strength, patience, and faith. One, two, three. Strength. It's interesting how a trial does that. Mentally, emotionally, I'm pretty strong. Faith, defining part of my life. Where do I get the trial? Hurry up, say it. Hurry up. Good grief, you people are slow. So no, I don't struggle with any of these. And it's funny, every time I declare to the family, here it is, God's put me in the crucible, I'm just dedicating myself to be a more patient guy. Here, here's the one thing, never pray for patience. Never, never, no. It's bad, because it comes at, it's waiting out. I was putting a little outline together. Beverly will die laughing, this is true. I was putting this stuff together, and I was writing my notes, and I wanted to make copies to bring into the office and whatever else on trial and patience. So I was doing all this stuff on patience. True story. Now, I'm not exactly Mr. Techno Wizard. I have all the Techno Wizard people around me, so I just kind of say it, write it down. You know, this is my laptop. Are you following me? So here I am, I'm doing a presentation on patience. It's supposed to take five minutes. It's true as I'm standing here, four hours later. I have, see these scars on my hand? That's from going jihad on a copy machine. Now when my wife walks into my office, true story, I have my hand stuck in the copy machine. And she goes, how's the presentation on patience coming? Real good! true story. Another definition of trial, it's applications or temptations that prove the graces or virtues of people. See, that's the good side. When you're under trial, the truth of the matter is you're at your best too. You're at your best. You're at your very best. The graces and virtues, the character qualities, the toughness, the ability to stick it out, the ability to tough it through. Everyone in here is a survivor. Everyone in here has battled through difficult things. Everyone in here has demonstrated in their life, everyone, character qualities and virtues that are admirable, that are gifts to your future. And trials get us better at that. It's like a workout for your character. And that's the beauty of them. There is good that comes from all this. 
Yes, it's tough in the crucible. Yes, it's hot. Some of you are in the middle of it right now. I know that. But hang tough. You're going to come out the other side. Lean into the graces and the virtues of your character, and you will come outside pure gold. Setbacks. It's a reversal or interruption in progress. It's a reversal or interruption in progress. Above progress, a good word is momentum. Momentum is powerful. You see, momentum works a couple of ways. When you feel like you can do no right, momentum's coming at you, and it's like, what's the point? What we have to do is get some positive momentum, and all of a sudden you get some wind at your sail. Some good things are happening. And even though people around you are saying, hey, this isn't so good, and that's not so great, and this is not so good, you get some good things going, and you get some momentum. Very, very powerful. And that's one of the things about setbacks. It reverses things, and we're going to talk about that because there's a sense of loss with that. It's an interruption, and it takes out your progress. Henry Ford said, the world was built to develop character. Powerful. And we must learn that setbacks, which we endure, help us keep marching forward. We're going to read this together. I love this quote. One, two, three. The world was built to character. And we must learn that setbacks, which we endure, help us set up for a comeback. It's a great line. It's a great principle. A setback is a setup for a comeback. Now, what do we want? We want it instantly. Okay, I've had the setback. Let's go. Okay, had the setback at nine, the comeback by two, and the victory parade by five, yes? And in the bank account by nine o'clock tomorrow morning. That's what we want. Is that true? We understand all this stuff intellectually. It's the emotions and the timing. It's the emotions and the timing. That's the issue. We go through these emotions with the setbacks. We want them to be over right away. Have you ever said out loud, I can't take anymore? How many of you have ever said that to yourself? Let me see your hands. How many of you found out that was not actually true? You could take more. Let me see your hands. <laughs> this has got to be the bottom. No, you are in the forefoot section right now, sweetheart. Oh, no. This has got to be the end, and it's not. And it's kind of amazing. And you find out when you hit the bottom and you go through the bottom, there was a lot more in me than I thought. Is that true? Powerful stuff. Let's get to the happy place. You ready for the happy place? A comeback is a return to a former condition prosperity or success. A return to a former condition, prosperity or success. Now, I got to pause here for a second. It's a return to a former condition, prosperity or success. This is very, very important. Last night I mentioned something that I think is a big deal, which is one of the reasons this era has hurt so many people so bad is that false expectations became the norm. Expectations that weren't rooted in fundamentals. And so what's happened is the reason why so many people are struggling is they want to go back to what they considered normal. So we had a false thing happen. That becomes our new normal, and we want to go back to that. Now, there will be peaks and valleys. However, when we talk about the return, it's one of the things we sometimes, we want to return to the false expectation. And there's a tremendous amount of dissonance. And we feel like we're out of sorts because we took this high point and we said, that's the way it's supposed to be. No, that was a high point. And it might not have been all that great, by the way. It's just a frame of reference. So we're going to give great definition today to what a real return means, to a former condition. The real former condition I'm interested in for you is your confidence. The real former condition I'm interested in you is your self-image. The real former condition I'm looking for you is understanding your value in who you are. 
My bride is always talking. Whenever she's encouraging people, she's always reminding them of their value. Always reminding them of their value. That's the former condition. The former condition, your winning ways, when you were at your best. Another definition of a comeback is you come back sometimes to a place you've never even been. It's a resurgent, an improvement, or a rediscovery. An insurgence, an improvement, or rediscovery. Resurgence, there's a movement to that word, an energy to that word, a resurgence. It's like a wave that has power to it. Improvement, you get better. I mean, what's the point of going back if you don't get better? Or a rediscovery. You know, as we go through life, we go through different seasons. When your kids are little, you see all these gifts and abilities in them, and we had those things as well. And as life goes on and we get busy, sometimes certain things got to get put on hold. Things get pushed to the side. Sometimes skills and abilities and gifts we have, they get pushed to the side, and sometimes it creates a dissonance. Now, I think it's okay to say, hey, for right now, this has to go on the side. But it's also, as we go through these things and we come back around, sometimes it's great to go rediscover those gifts and those abilities and those dreams and those hopes and go use them for the future. Let me tell you a little comeback story. 1993, Edinburgh, Scotland. Guy walks out in the middle of the night, leaves his wife and two kids. She's a homemaker. She goes on welfare. Has to move in with her sister. So they're living in one room in her sister's house, her and her two kids. Decides, okay, I need to get a job. I'm going to become a teacher. And even though she had gone to college to become a teacher, she had to take a year to get her teaching certificate. So she goes back to school to get her teaching certificate for a year while on welfare. Starts writing because writing was her dream as a kid. Her dad had championed her. You've got a gift. You're a writer. You need to write. But her dad had passed. Got married, had kids. She starts writing on welfare, getting her teaching credential. Writes a book, sells her first book for $4,000. At the end of that year, gets her teaching credential, goes teaching full-time. And at night, enjoyed the process, and the $4,000 helped pay some bills. So she writes another book, sells that book for $12,000. In her third year, she's teaching full-time, writing at night. Her third book sells 5.8 million copies in its first print. Reprint, another million five. Gal's name? J.K. Rowling. Most books sold in the world in the last five years. Movies that have been made from her books, a billion dollars. Here's a great quote from J.K. Rowling. Anything's possible if you've got enough nerve. Anything's possible if you've got enough nerve. Now understand that when people quote things, it's because the thing they've learned, embodied, or have to come to embody. So guess what? This was a big deal for her to do. For her to write a book was a nerve. That was, you got some nerve. That's what she was saying to herself. I guarantee you. Who are you to be writing books? You got some nerve. And you know what? It turned out she did. And that's a great gift that she gives to the rest of us. Comeback stories are everywhere. Now, let's again diagnose the comeback. You get the setback. You want the comeback But most people's comebacks never get started. It's the comeback trail. Have you guys ever heard that phrase, the comeback trail? Well, I actually want to change that just by one letter. I want to call it the comeback rail. Because to me, it's a train that gets back on a track. For the young folks who are here, it's getting that train on the track right up front. And don't let your buddies get you sidetracked. You young folks, you need to know, even though you got buddies that you're friends with, who you you hang out with, 
they often don't have your best interests in mind. Your mom and dad are the only people in this world you can count on to have your best interests in heart. Get on the rails. Get on the rails. When you're on the comeback rail, there's one thing that derails it, and that's emotions, our own emotions. Most comebacks are derailed by ourselves. So here's the first comeback derailer. It's a sense of loss. It's a sense of loss. I was in Europe for a couple of weeks. There's a couple of guys I have a great relationship with. They own the largest real estate company in Europe. They're two partners, brilliant guys, among the most influential people in the industry in the world. And one of the guys is 72 years of age. And he said, I came over here. He, he was Canadian. He went to Europe, built the largest real estate organization in Europe, just dominating the marketplace. He said it took 15 years to build this. 15 years. And this guy is a high-energy guy. He said it took 15 years to build this, working at it every hour of every day. And it seems like it took six months to destroy it. He goes, I don't have another 15 years. Now, this is big, because some of you here are feeling this type of stuff. Not necessarily with the time frame. It took all these years, all these years, all these years. Get derailed. Now I have this sense of loss. That's not the deal. Here's the understanding is during that 15 years, do you think nothing was accomplished? During that 15 years, do you think your character wasn't developed? During that 15 years, do you think you didn't get some experiences? During that 15 years, do you didn't think your skills became sharper? How many of you today, honestly, are better business people than you were three years ago? Let me see your hands, nice and high, nice and high. So great, great, you got a college education. It was an expensive one. How many of you would be better with your money today than you were three years ago? Let me see your hands, please. How many of you wish you'd have listened to me better three years ago? Can I see your hands, please? <laughs> 15 years to build it, six months to tear it down. Sense of loss. There's people in this room who've handed the keys back to the bank on their home. There's people in this room who've probably filed bankruptcy. There's people in this room who've had to make some very tough choices. There's people in this room who've done difficult things. By the way, there's a whole bunch of people not in this room who've gone through these tough times. And the sense of loss is very difficult. And it's an emotion that derails. Why? Because I want to go back to that which I had in my mind. And every time I'm not there, now you are better today than you were when you were there. You are better. Your value, who you are. You've learned more. You'll be a little more cautious. You'll be a little more careful. You'll have a better plan. You won't be so loose. Is this true? And it won't take 15 years. A comeback doesn't take as long as it takes to construct something. It just doesn't. It just doesn't. A sense of loss. It's one of the emotional side effects. Number two is a feeling of overwhelm. A feeling of overwhelm. Now, I get this a lot, and if you're into details at all, it's very easy to get overwhelmed. My bride is gifted with the, the heritage profile. How many of you have had a heritage profile? So you know what global is, right? Well, Kevin Buffini will tell you that Beverly is a special category all of her own, and she calls her hyper-global. So like when our first child was born... She was talking about, I wonder who he's going to marry. I'm like, I'm trying to think, how do we get him in the car seat? <laughs> She's thinking of grandchildren. So I have a tendency to get overwhelmed because I'm actually into the details, right? True story. One night she sends me a text message. It's a true story. She goes, honey, could you pick up Island Brothers chicken for dinner tonight? I go, that's going to be tough. I'm in Toronto. Now, when we talked that night, I said, honey, I could never have married a clingy woman. 
but I would like you to know I'm out of the freaking country. That would be helpful, okay? Just, just a little on that. So mama, she doesn't get overwhelmed. I tend to get overwhelmed. And when you feel like you've had a setback, when you feel like you've got a lot to overcome, when it's like, oh man, I've taken these body blows and this is how far I have to go. Here's how much I owe. Here's how much I weigh. Here's how bad it seems to be with my kids. Here's what's going on with my family. Here's what's going on with my career. Here's what's going on. And then you get into the other stuff. But we get all screwed up about a lot of things. Is that true? So I'm going to go back to give you one of the great gifts that I was given. And again, I'll mention many mentors here. Dr. Alex Lackey, the late Alex Lackey, he did some remarkable things for me. He would say, you know what, Brian, let's say you got a big block of cheese. And he says, think about that stinky French cheese, like the bad cheese. And he goes, that's the size of your problem. He says, your problem is you want the details and you want them quick. Now, he was diagnosing me. He says, so you want to fix it, but you want to fix it now. And he says, because of that, it raises tremendous stress for you. And he says, your chances of success are very low. He said, here's all I want you to do. All I want you to do is focus on this. Knock one hole in it, that's all. Just one hole in it, just that. He said, forget that anything else exists. Now, he says, this should be the most important stuff. This should be number one or number two. And that's what you've got to focus on. Forget that anything else exists. He says, you can't control the whole thing. You can't do it all. There's only so many hours in the day. You only have so much physical energy. You only have so much capabilities at this time. Forget everything else exists. And he says, when you get that knocked out, that's success. And he said, then we go for this one. And that's success. Now, I can tell you this. This sounds bizarre, and everyone's got to find their own little rhythm to it. But I have staged personal comebacks by cleaning up my desk and office. But what's happened is, for sometimes, because I'm a guy who likes to have his workspace in a certain way and so on and so forth and whatever else, and lock the door so kids can't come in, do the whole thing. One thing. Boom. I got one thing. And now I'm set up. Okay, I got one thing done that was important to me. Now, it's not the highest priority thing, maybe, but now I got one thing. Now, in this case, it might be a small little piece of the cheese. Does that make sense? Now I can actually go, okay, now what's the most important thing? Because sometimes those small things are the things that actually derail you. Is this making sense? Neat quote from Ogmandino, and I've quoted a lot of quotes here. It says, sound character provides the power with which a person may ride the emergency of life instead of being overwhelmed by them. Sound character provides the power with which a person may ride the emergency of life instead of being overwhelmed by them. Sound character. See, that's what tests and trials do. The truth of the matter is this. Let's be honest. In our culture today, we want a pill to fix it. We want an infomercial-type fix. That's what we want. And the thing about it is we don't want to work on our character. We just want the outcome. We want the details. We want the payoff. But all of this stuff is character-based. We get this overwhelmed. We understand. Character is the key. Number three, a feeling of apathy. A feeling of apathy. Nothing I do makes a difference. Nothing I do makes a difference. I think there's a hopelessness that comes with that. We got to get our head out of the sand. We got to get in the game. The next emotion that derails a comeback is a constant frustration. Constant frustration. And this again, now we build it all together. We've got the False expectations, we're looking for a return to that. We've had the trial, and by the way, the heat keeps coming. There's a feeling of overwhelm, sometimes a little apathy, and it's just this constant frustration. And you find yourself complaining. You find yourself, this was wrong and that's wrong, and the attitude that we talk about starts to sink. Now, again, 
attitude alone is not enough. Zig Ziglar is the first guy to tell you that. Zig says, negative thinking will allow you to do everything. Positive thinking will, but positive thinking will let you do it better. Does that make sense? So you can't just positive think your way out of this. But you have to know that the constant frustration and the negative energies, it's a drain. Energy is the key. Emotion is the key. Having your fire and your purpose is the key. And if you have a drain that's draining off your energy, and it's draining off, and here's the thing, the negative emotions drain off the good emotions. That's a key thing. The negative emotions, they take the good emotions away. And you need the good emotions to be good. You need the good emotions to stay tough. You need the good emotions to stage your comeback. You can't have a comeback run on negative fuel. Now, some people will start one. All right, I'm mad. I tried to get into my jeans. That's it. I jumped off the mantelpiece. Still couldn't get him past the knee. That's it. I've had enough. So you can start with a negative emotion. You can't stay with a negative emotion. You can't grow with a negative emotion. Is this making sense? Number five, the feelings of depression. I'm just going to touch on this. I'm not going to get into pop psychology one way or the other. What I know right now is the radical increase in the medication that's being pitched out in America right now. And I just want to clarify one thing. I want to give you the definition of a feeling of depression is different than depression. It's feelings of dejection and hopelessness. It's low in spirit, okay? Feelings of dejection and hopelessness, low in spirit. Now, I'm not getting into any of the biochemical stuff. I'm not getting into any of the serious things that go on in people's lives all the way up to mental illness. I'm not getting into any of that stuff. But I'm just going to say this. Here's what I want you to know. You can be a positive person, a fired up person, enthusiastic person on the comeback trail, living your life in coaching, doing whatever else, coming to the seminar, fired up, and have feelings of depression, That's not something you need to hide. I need to take my ribbon off for a few months. Those are human emotions. It's a feeling. It's a feeling. Now, sometimes it's not fleeting. And a feeling of hopelessness is that everything I do doesn't seem to work out. I finally said, okay, I'm going to do something. And sometimes when you decide to move forward, a next short setback comes and it's like, and I think the dynamic is that we can be consistent. We always won't be happy we're going to talk about where the sources of our joy come from. Joy and happiness are two separate things. Is everybody with me on this? Joy is connected to purpose. Joy is connected to what you value. Joy is connected to what you're all about, what you stand for, what you're striving for. Happiness is how you wake up and how the day goes. Are you guys with me, yes or no? A lot of people confuse the two. You can have great joy in your heart and have an unhappy day. If that makes sense, say I. So what's the answer to depression? a feeling of depression. What do you think the answer is? It's hope. It's hope. And we're going to talk about how to have hope. Let's talk about what fuels a comeback. What fuels a comeback? Just so I'm sure, are you guys ready for a comeback? Come on now, big time. And I'm not just talking about getting back to where you were. I'm talking about a resurgence, an improvement. A vision for the future is the first thing. You got to have a vision for the future. You got to have a picture of what it looks like. Now, you know, it's not perfect, and you won't come down off the mountain with a tablet of stone here. But you've got to have something in mind. You've got to have something in mind. What am I trying to get accomplished? Lou had a vision in mind. Here's what I'm going to try to do. And he kept painting the picture, and he kept selling those kids on it. Kept selling them on it. Here's where we're going. Here's where we're going. A vision for the future. Next, a sense of purpose. 
a sense of purpose. Now, just so you know, the self-help industry took off with Dale Carnegie. How to win friends and influence people. He was doing seminars in the 1910, 1912, all the way up 1920. Then Napoleon Hill came along with Think and Grow Rich, and those two men, and then George Clayson with The Richest Man in Babylon. Those three guys were all living at the same time. Those three guys actually even did presentations together. Would you have liked to have been at a seminar those guys gave? Come on. No DVRs. That would have been cool. But we get their books, don't we? Just so you know, America really led the way in this. I'm telling you right now, when I came here as an immigrant, I had never even heard of self-help seminars. There were no self-help seminars in Ireland when I left. Here's how you help yourself to 11 pints of Guinness as opposed to 12. Okay, I mean, (laughs) we just didn't have them. I never heard them. Maybe they were there. I just never saw them. So I come here, and it's like, man, I, I start working, and I get this mentor of mine, Gene Coleman, and he says, you got to go see Zig Ziglar. That's, it was like my first couple of days, you got to go here. And then I got into real estate. Oh, you got to go to a seminar every day because it beats working. Let's go. Let's go to these seminars. <laughs> and it was all this kind of stuff. But you need to know, as much as that is part of the American culture, and I believe a huge part of what makes this whole place go in North America, is this stuff's been around a long time. This sense of purpose, this is not something that came up in corporate America or whatever else. I'm going to take you back to 150 AD. As a ruler, this man ruled over two-thirds of the earth's surface. You only know him as a character in Gladiator, is Marcus Aurelius. Emperor Marcus Aurelius said this. He said, everything, a horse, a vine, is created for some duty. For what task then were you yourself created? A man's delight is to do the things he was made for. Now, that's a big statement, okay? So a person's delight is to do the things he was made for. This is one of the reasons we love the heritage profile. You do the things you're designed to do. But when people get down to this whole dynamic of purpose, it kind of freaks them out because they think it has to be this grandiose thing, And, you know, maybe it's, you know, here's what Nelson Mandela did, and here's what Mother Teresa did, and here's... Those are people whose purposes became enormous and very valuable. Here's a couple things. We're going to do this, and we're going to do some work specifically tonight on giving you some tools and empowerment for your purpose, clarifying it, sharpen it, and define it. But I want to give you a couple of thoughts. You might even want to write these down. Let me tell you when you start on your purpose, it starts with values. It starts with values. A little quote I've been saying for years, when your values are clear, your decisions are easy. When your values are clear, your decisions are easy. Say it with me. When your values are clear, your decisions are easy. That's the start of your purpose. When your values are clear, your decisions are easy. Now, let me give you a couple of other thoughts on the whole concept of purpose. Don't start with high and lofty. Don't start high and lofty. A purpose must start close to home. If you can't start with the people around you, here's the dynamic. Uh, and I'll talk about Mother Teresa because we all know her as this, this incredible icon. Mother Teresa, like all great things in life, started in Dublin. <laughs> Mother Teresa was raised in a convent about, about a mile right there away from our house. Mother Teresa takes a call to go to Bangladesh. She had no design to start this great order that would work all over the world. That was not her design. Her 
purpose was this. She started helping out in these hospitals, and then she saw there was these areas in the hospitals where they had sick children, and they put the sick children there to die in Bangladesh, in unbelievable poverty. And so her purpose statement was, was this, to bring a smile to the face of a dying child, period. It wasn't this, I'm going to be known, I'm going to win the Nobel Prize, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. She didn't know who Nobel was. She knew about this one little room that was off of a hospital. And she wanted to bring a smile to the face of that child. Well, I believe all purposes need to start close to home about things that are important, about things that resonate. Here's the deal. If I have this great purpose to go do all this stuff and I can't take care of my own family, then I have not earned the right to go do all this stuff. Does that make sense? And that's why many organizations and many people have toppled because they didn't take care of what was close to home. Your purpose needs to start close to home. Values are clear, decisions are easy. Don't start high and lofty. Let that develop if that ends up being your destiny. Let that develop. Don't get caught up in that. Start close to home. Number three, fulfilling one's potential. Now, how many of you in here have that untapped potential in you? Let me see your hands. Nice and high. Nice and high. You have untapped potential means you have unused what? Talent. You want to get on the comeback trail? Talent fuels the comeback. Always. Talent. Now, talent to me is, is underneath this potential. It's talent, opportunity, and desire. Just We'll touch on these things. Talent, opportunity, and desire. You can have the talent, you can have the opportunity and the talent, but you've got to have the desire. You've got to be willing to do it. Why did I show you Rocky every time? Did he have the talent, yes or no? Did his coach say he had the talent, yes or no? Yeah, he did. Once he got the goal, which was his purpose, what did he do? He went to, he went to work. He went to work. You've got to have the desire. Now, we'll talk a little bit about that. Everybody has degrees of desire. The key is, whatever level of desire you have, you've got to get it all. You've got to get it all working. You've got to use it now. How many of you believe you're capable of more? Let me see your hands. Here's my question to you. Are you waiting for a bigger recession before you use it? What are you holding it on for? Oh, no, no. No, there's another big one coming. I'm just going to stay cool for right now. Would you agree now would be a pretty good time to bring out all the cannons, yes or no? Yes or no? Right now. If it's not now, when are you going to do it? When the humor strikes you? It doesn't work like that. Fulfilling your potential. Talent, opportunity, and desire. There's two things we found in coaching. Two things. Number one, people have blind spots. People have blind spots. I've used the illustration many times of the lady who came out of the bathroom, run into the seminar with her skirt tucked up, not wanting to sing. Have you guys heard me tell that story? We all got blind spots. We all got shortcomings. It's why we need people. It's why we need one another. We need one another to say, hey, you know what? You got a blind spot over here. And we do it in a gracious way. Do it in a truthful way. You got a blind spot over here. But the other thing that people are blind to is their gifts. People are blind to their gifts. Every bit is they're blind to their shortcomings. Because the gifts are just natural to you. It's just what you do. To the point you don't even think it is a gift. One of my favorite authors in my whole life growing up, and this is interesting because I wasn't a particularly uh, spiritual kid growing up, but for whatever reason, I always liked St. Augustine. And anything I ever read, or any quotes and the little pamphlets I've seen on it were very powerful. 
And this is one of my all-time favorite St. Augustine quotes. He says, men go abroad to wonder at the heights of the mountains, at the huge waves of the sea, at the long courses of the rivers, at the vast compass of the ocean, at the circular motion of the stars, and they pass by themselves without wondering. People are blind to their shortcomings and to their gifts. We've seen this in you, and you've seen this in you. There have been times you've surprised yourself. There's times you've done stuff, man, I didn't even know I could do that. There's times you've gotten certain results and you got a nosebleed. Woo! Whoa! This is going too fast. I'm doing more than I thought I would. Let me go back. We're all blind to this. The opportunity for gain is the next thing. The opportunity for gain. Okay. I made a promise, and I understand, please, in this room, 24, 2,500 people, we got people from many different perspectives, okay? And here's the deal. I'm not a politician, not interested in politics, and I'm not going to talk about politics. I want to talk about something, though, that I think is important, and it's this. I believe deeply that part of what makes this whole thing go is that a free society tends to be built on a free market, Does that make sense? It's a big deal. Here's a dynamic. Capitalism is a good thing. Capitalism is a very good thing. Is it a perfect thing? No. In a free market of capitalism, do people ever get greedy? Do people ever do dishonest things? Yeah. Sometimes very powerful people do greedy, dishonest things that impact a lot of other people. Is that a true statement? But I'm just going to share with you. I grew up in a culture which was conflicted. We had a socialistic economic country with very, very ambitious, driven people who who wanted to improve themselves. That's why for over a century, Ireland's greatest export was its people. Millions of people left Ireland for years and years and years looking for a better life. Now, to try to control this and contain this, they tried to do the best they could. They came up with an environment that became socialistic. Ireland had a peak period because what they had was they had this Celtic tiger where all these folks who'd been going away for years, all of a sudden there were some opportunities. They gave some breaks. They gave incentives for American companies to go to Ireland, and they gave them tax breaks. I remember we bought this big IBM mainframe deal in our company, and our guy's on the phone. He says, can you help me with something? I'm walking down the aisle, and our head computer guy's like, can you help me? And I'm like, with computers? And he goes, no, I just need some help. And he puts on the phone and he puts it on speaker. And he says, I call this number. I can't understand a word she says. And I go, IBM, how are you doing? What's your problem? Relax, relax now. And he's like, I don't understand a word she's saying. So here it is. I'm calling the IBM 800 number and it's in leak slip in Ireland. So Ireland went through this resurgency and people who'd been leaving stayed home. And all of a sudden we we had this 10-year run-up. was unbelievable. I just want to share this. When you go to set your goals, you need to feel zero embarrassment about gain. You need to have a pride and a joy in, no, no, no. When you work hard, you deserve certain things. Is this making sense? This is the way it's supposed to be. This is the way it's supposed to be. If I work harder than that guy, I shouldn't get the same result as that guy. Would you guys agree with that, yes or no? Okay, no bloody way. If I work harder than you, if I'm willing to put my neck on the line, you want to know this? You're not an entrepreneur until you sweated making a payroll. 
I've written checks to make payroll. I've written checks to keep the doors open. I've put it all on the line. I've stayed up nights. I've gotten up early. I've put in the time. I've put in the energy. And so have you. And we're starting to get this little creepy thing and say, no, 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 everybody's got to be the same. When did that ever happen in the course of human history? One of the things that made this place go is that people came here and they said, it doesn't matter who you are or where you are or where you come from. Right now, you know one of the reasons why Toronto's going through such a great resurgence is they have people coming from all over the world to Toronto. There's over 60 languages spoken in Toronto. People coming, looking for a better life. You talk about recession, people are getting off the planes and coming to America today and going, you gotta be kidding me. I ordered my phone service and I got it in two days. Right today, Ireland, the more advanced country, you order phone service, 11 weeks before you get a telephone. Sure, what's your hurry? Relax. Have a pint. No one's trying to talk to you anyway. <laughs> Relax. I'm going to share this with you because I believe your goals need to be laced with this. Human beings are designed for this. If you put in the time, if you put in the effort, if you put in the risk, you deserve the reward. It's the way this life is supposed to work. It's all over this life. If you put seed in the ground and you fertilize and you water and you tend the garden, you should get a crop. Is that a true statement, yes or no? I sit down, I wait for it to happen, and then I complain that it didn't happen. Those two people cannot be compensated the same way. When you go to set your goals, there should be gain. There should be opportunity. There should be no embarrassment about it. There should be no hiding it. Now, you don't want to be braggadocious about it telling other people. You just need to know there should be that in there. And we need to get back to that. We need to get in that game. Because when people see winners, they go, I want to be a winner too. Does that make sense? It becomes infectious. We had a guy in Ireland by the name of Eamon Coughlin. Now, you got to understand this. Listen. America, if you don't win a gold medal, they don't even... Oh. Oh, you finished? You got a silver? Oh. You want a gold medal? Unless you're in one of the key sports, people won't even remember your name. Ireland, Ireland's won three gold medals. Two silvers and three bronze. In our lifetime. <laughs> I can tell you every one of their names. Our first winner, Ronnie Delaney. 1954. I still remember it today. Because we showed it every single Sunday. <laughs> so we're in this little culture. We haven't been starved for success. Guy comes along called Eamon Coughlin in the early 1980s. Goes to college in New York. Wins the Wanamaker Mile. Sets a world record. You've got to be kidding me. And he goes on and on and he wins world championships and world records and does this and does this and does this. And all of a sudden, skinny little guys in Dublin go into a track club where Eamon Coughlin is and they're all trained together and they're all trained together and all trained together. Ireland, within 10 years, had five of the top 1,500 meter runners in the world from having none because they saw the example. That guy can do it. That guy's winning medals. That guy's being successful. And if he can do it, What? That's the way this is supposed to work, and that's what you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be a pebble on a pond. If you're going to come to the seminars and do the coaching and put in the effort and put the positive stuff in, it should show up. What are you doing? And it should show up for you. You're winning. What are you doing? How do I get to be more like you? Well, here it is. Pebble on a pond, pebble on a pond. And you all know, you've all shared how you've become successful. You've all shared why you've stayed up. You've all shared your attitude, and some take it and some don't. Is that true? but that's still your job. Opportunity again, powerful thing. Which I believe leads to number five, making a difference. I believe we can make a difference in our world, in our economy, in our market. 
Mother Teresa made a difference where she was. Whether it was Calcutta, Bangladesh, wherever she went, she helped the people who were directly in front of her. Okay? Making a difference. I love this quote from her. She says, I found the paradox that if I love until it hurts, then there's no hurt but only love. Powerful stuff. I believe wherever you are, you're to have that purpose for where you are. I believe that your comeback story is going to make a difference for other people. It should start close to the ones you love and the ones you're around and your immediate friends, family, and loved ones. And then it'll broaden itself out. And then it's like a pebble on a pond and it starts to impact and impact and impact. And the ripples grow and the ripples grow. And every single person, listen, every single person in this room can do this. I believe everyone in this room is destined for this if you will embrace your future destiny. I truly believe that with my heart. That's not seminar speak. I believe that. Sylvester Stallone knows a lot about setbacks and a lot about comebacks. When he was born, there were serious complications with the birth. Doctor had to go in at the last minute to save his life, use the forceps, bring him out head first. All the nerves on this part of his face died dead to this day. He wasn't acting in Rocky. That's actually the way his face looks. He grew up in uh, very tough circumstances. Mom and dad divorced at a very young age. He was in six foster homes and 11 schools growing up. When he's 15, he finally moves into his mother's apartment in Philadelphia. Now, Rocky believed he was supposed to be an actor. That was his dream, and he wanted to pursue it. So he goes to New York and pursues it and uh, ends up meeting a gal who's another aspiring actress. They get married. They're trying this. They're trying that. They're trying this, and people are like, Look at you. Now, I think he's a good-looking guy. But people were like, nah, we don't have a part for you. The way you talk, we don't have a part for you. And he kept striking out. He's washing dishes. He's doing this. He's doing that. And at the end of the couple of years, he and his wife divorce. He's by himself. He gets very down on look. For a period of time, he starts buying into what other people say. When other people told him to stay down, he started to believe it to some degree. Because someone said, you seem to communicate stories very well, but maybe you're not designed to be an actor. So what he actually did was he started writing. He started writing, and he actually wrote a script for a movie called Paradise Alley. Now, he sold the script. It was the first thing he made money at. He sold this script. He later made the movie, years later, he sold this script for $100. You think he knows a little bit about setback and comeback? This guy was down to his, the very end. True story. Now, there's a lot of urban myths about Sylvester Stallone, and that's why I had to do a lot of research to validate what was true and what was not, including talking to his agent and everything else. Here's the true story. He got so desperate and so defeated, he went, took his, the only companion left in his life was his dog. And he went down to the corner in 42nd Street outside a liquor store and sold his dog for $50 so he could eat. True story. Not Hollywood. True story. Two nights later, he's meeting a friend in a bar. It's a sports bar. And on the TV in the corner, they show a fight. This is before pay-per-view. You used to actually be able to see this stuff. And there's a fight between Chuck Wapner and Muhammad Ali. And this is the story that the movie's based on. Chuck Wabner was a journeyman heavyweight. 
Muhammad Ali, the greatest fighter, the greatest entertainer perhaps that's ever lived. Ali didn't take the fight too seriously, came out, first round, Wepner knocks him down. Ali gets up and punishes this guy and beats the living tar out of him. Round after round after round after round, he is battered, he is bruised, he's bloody. And he keeps on coming, and he keeps on coming, and he keeps on coming. And Sylvester Stallone is looking at this, and he becomes stirred, just stirred at watching someone else's courage. Over the course of the next three weeks, he goes to the New York City Library. There's writing materials for free, there's books for free, and they serve muffins in the morning. True. And over the course, it takes him three weeks. He's up all day, up all night, can't sleep, and he writes a screenplay for the movie Rocky. He takes the screenplay back to the people. He sold the script for Paradise Alley for for $100. They read the script. They love the script. True story, 1976. They offer him $150,000. Can you imagine how much that was? That's a lot of money today. One problem. What do you think the problem was? He says, you know, I'm going to be the main character. He goes, oh, no, not a chance. Look at you, talk funny. You got a strange-looking mouth. You're a good writer. Be a writer. He's like, I'm an actor. I want to act. They go back and forth, back and forth. Listen to this now. He turns them down. True story. Heard it from the horse's mouth. They go back to him three weeks later. They offer him $250,000 in 1976 to a guy who just sold his dog. And he says, no, I ain't doing it. I ain't doing it. He says, if I'm not in this movie as this character, he says, I am this character. I know what this man lived. He's in Philadelphia. He's me. I am this guy. I'm playing this role. I'm going to be this guy. So they came back to him and said, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to make it. We think it's going to be a VHS type movie. We'll pay you 35 grand for the script. We'll pay you 23 grand for acting because that was the lowest rate they could pay a full-time actor who was not an extra. Okay? So if you were a union actor and you were any kind of character, main character, but the lowest you could pay was 23 grand. We're going to take our offer off the table at 250. We'll pay you 35 for the script, 23 for acting. And he said, okay, that's fine. I just want 5% of the gross. And they said, well, it's not going to make any money at the box office. You don't get the VHS stuff. He said, fine. $200 million. $200 million bucks. It went on to become a billion-dollar business. Rocky 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. Son of Rocky, cousin of Rocky, mother of Adrian. So let me ask you this. What do you think was the first thing he did with the money? He went down, stood on a corner, outside the liquor store, three days, three full days. The only thing he did during those days was work out and then go to the liquor store, go to the liquor store, go to the liquor store. Offers the guy 100 bucks, the guy says no. Offers the guy 500 bucks, the guy says no. Offers the guy 1,000 bucks, the guy says no. Now remember, he's only gotten 23 up front. There's a lot of discussion over what he eventually paid. He paid in the thousands and had to give the guy a part in the movie. <laughs> you remember in Rocky II, Butkus? Butkus was his dog. 
This guy knew something about setbacks. This guy knew something about comebacks. And this guy kept certain principles that were true. I think that's a better story than Rocky. And I believe he was able to play that character because this guy knew something about comebacks. This guy knew something about setbacks. This guy wasn't handed anything with a silver spoon. This guy had to overcome. This guy takes a lot of criticism. He's not Lawrence Olivier as an actor. He's not teaching classes in diction down at the local college. But it's amazing what happens when a human being knows who they are and what they are. He had a goal. He had a goal to be an actor like Rocky had a goal to go the distance. And it didn't matter what punches he took or what hits he took in his Rocky. And it didn't matter how much money they offered him. That was going to derail him. That was going to get him off the track. Here, take this here. 150000 A lot of money for a guy who just sold his dog. Two hundred and fifty grand. He's sitting down at the table with people who paid him 100 bucks for his previous script. This is what I know I'm supposed to do. We are going to put you on the track to knowing exactly in your life what you want, where you want to be, and what you're supposed to be doing. Not my definition of it, your definition of it. So when the punches come, when the hits come, it doesn't matter how many setbacks you encounter, how many blows you take, how many challenges you face, how much enticement there is to take you off track. You're going to stay on the rails. You're going to fulfill the purpose that I believe God has for you in your life. And you're going to be the comeback kid yourself. And then your responsibility is to go shine a light and help other people in their comeback. Sound good to you? Great stuff. Brian always reserves our best content for events like our Mastermind Summit and the Peak Experience. I hope we can get back to hosting those really soon. And for a final word, here's Brian's mom. May the road rise up to meet you. And may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields and the sun shine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. See you next time. <laughs>